Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, US Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, Kat. Welcome to RPG Deluge Week. <laughs> Thank you very much. We have a lot to cover this week, don't we? Yeah, a lot of surprise drops, and not just like, you know, the stuff we were expecting from Sony, but Nintendo is like, hey, guess what? We have stuff too, so eat it. We are once again reminded that RPGs are the greatest genre because they seem to be riding at the forefront of so much of what is happening in the next generation. I mean, look at Xbox One has so, or the new Xbox has so many different RPG studios, and the PS5 is also going big on RPG exclusives. It's mana from heaven for the blood god. It really is. As someone who, like, in, like, grade nine was pointed and laughed at and said, huh, huh, nerd, I feel very vindicated lately. I know. It felt like in the 2000s, it was all about action games and shooters and RPGs were completely on the outs. And now it's all about giant open worlds with RPG elements. And it's not amazing. But on the other hand, we're still getting great hardcore RPGs like Baldur's Gate 3. So it feels like the best of all worlds. It really does. And I, I know we've had like long, huge, heated discussions about the this, this status of Dark Souls at an RPG. But Demon's Souls coming out for PS5, that's a, that's a pretty big deal for RPGs as well. Yeah, I mean, it is. Though I have some questions about Demon's Souls, actually. Uh, Mike was pointing out in Slack that, for one thing, it seems a lot faster than the PS3 version, and I'm a little worried that Bluepoint is going to create a absolutely gorgeous game that somehow doesn't feel like a Soulsborne game. Yeah, um, I think your fear is valid there, because if I recall correctly, wasn't uh, The Last Guardian, sorry, not The Last Guardian. Shadow of the Colossus. Uh, Shadow of the Colossus. Something about the physics or something seemed different, and people weren't exactly thrilled with that. It wasn't the physics, if I recall correctly. It was more that it looks so clean <laughs> that mm, yeah. it kind of changed the character of the visuals. And there was just something off about it. Katie, in particular, did not like it. Yeah, I seem to remember her complaining about it quite a bit. And you're right, because Shadow of the Colossus does have that kind of almost like a, a, a light, grimy feel to it that really added to the atmosphere of this abandoned, sad kingdom. And if you clean that up, you kind of you do lose something. I did see that tweet from Jeff Grubb that kind of made me chuckle. It was like, where all those people who are upset, uh, I wonder how all the people who are upset about those PS5 games also being on PS4 will feel about the fact that Demon's Souls is on PS3. <laughs> Generations don't mean anything anymore. <laughs> they really don't. I mean, we're just going to keep remaking games until the end of time. See Final Fantasy VII Remake. Yeah, pretty much. So uh, welcome to the new age. Yes. All right, so we got a lot to cover this week. We're going to talk about the PlayStation 5 showcase that happened last week, including the price point and some of the pre-order issues. We're going to talk about the new Monster Hunter. We're going to talk about the Harry Potter RPG. And we're going to talk about Final Fantasy 16 and its place in the long history of Final Fantasy reveals that happened at the beginning of Generations. If you enjoy the podcast, can I recommend that you go and leave us a review over on Apple Podcasts or the podcatcher of your choice. We always enjoy hearing from you. You can follow me on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. I stream every Monday, Wednesday, and Saturday at twitch.tv slash TV. And we also have a newsletter. Nadia, what was the topic of the newsletter this week? Uh, I believe my head was simply, holy crap, Final Fantasy 16. <laughs> and that was my newsletter. It came out quite late. 
But uh, yes, I was just kind of talking about, well, we'll get into Final Fantasy 16, of course, but I was talking about just how much it shares with already Final Fantasy 14 and how excited I am that Yoshi P is on the project. So yeah, that was that was a fun little uh, explosion, I suppose is the word I want. I realized that I missed a bit of a trick because I should have done a basically a hanging out and chatting with you about the Final Fantasy 16 reveal and everything on my Twitch channel. Oh, that would have been great. Oh, we got to remember that sort of thing for next yeah. time there is like a an update or whatever. Because that's a great idea. But I need to have some kind of RPG like background for my green screen or something. <laughs> There's like 10 million nice scenes you can use from RPGs or use a distressing scene or something like mm. a dragon eating someone. Yeah, I I don't know if I would want to go generically medieval. Maybe I could go high-tech fantasy. When I visited the offices of Yuji Hori, his office was just this medieval sort of tavern sort of looking place with swords and, and everything really? hanging around. He had, oh, yeah, he had a replica of Lotus Sword, too, and I held it. It was really, really cool. Oh, that's awesome. Like, wow. It's funny because when I go to so many Japanese office spaces, they're pretty spartan you know they're your typical cubicle farms and then and everything and you don't see a huge amount of like memorabilia inside the actual offices so it's kind of amazing to me that yuji hori like fully embraced it all oh yeah he went all out and i remember him holding the sword and someone said what do the runes mean on the sword he's like i don't know (laughs) (laughs) i love developers i wonder if we're not too far off from a dragon quest 12 announcement um, I think 12 might have been unofficially confirmed in that, yes, we are working on this. But yeah, I am hoping that we are pretty close to a, a 12 reveal announcement. And uh, I am looking forward to that. Heck, give me Dragon Quest Builders 3, please. I really want Dragon Quest Builders 3. I wonder if it's going to be on one console to start or if it's going to be more like Dragon Quest 11 and just on everything. That I was actually wondering myself, because I believe Dragon Quest XI was built up entirely differently on the Switch than it was on the PS4, and I would say, well, maybe the team doesn't have time for that, but then I remember Dragon Quest XI was on the 3DS as well as the PS4, so I guess maybe they have some kind of manpower to do, say, a Switch version and a PS4 slash PC version. So we'll see what happens, I suppose, because I really can't envision a world where Square Enix ignores the Switch for the next Dragon Quest game. Absolutely not, especially given the huge install base the Switch enjoys over in Japan. And at the same time, it's not like the PS4 is is small potatoes. I guess I'll see how the PS5 does, but uh, I don't see them ignoring that either. All right, let's continue on to RPG News of the Week. First item of business, the Mass Effect trilogy has been leaked And it just seems like there's more confirmation than ever that it's going to be remastered for modern platforms, which is great because I can finally force you to play it, Nadia. (laughs) I was going to say it's time to put my money where my mouth is and and play some Mass Effect. But do I go through all three games or do I start with two? Um, I think that you should start with the first one since it's on our top 25 RPGs of all time. Oh, that's a good point. Okay, you got me. I wonder if they would add new content. That would be nice. Yeah, um, I guess we'll have to see, but I th- I'm thinking they're just going to guzzy up the graphics and call it a day. It would be pretty funny if they went full Command & Conquer remastered, went like all out on everything, and even fixed the ending of Mass Effect 3. Yeah, I was wondering <laughs> if they'll do anything with the ending of Mass Effect 3, because 
gosh, I think that was one of the first very big social media blow-ups where fans kind of redirected the course of a piece of entertainment they didn't like. They've spent so much... They put so much love and time into Command & Conquer Remaster that it kind of gives me hope that Mass Effect Remaster will be good. Doesn't Command & Conquer Remaster have, like, redone FMVs or something like that? Yes. Well, they went and found the original files, which is pretty cool. Oh, nice. That's really, really cool. I love that they did that. And then as for Mass Effect, I mean, there's so much DLC. Obviously, you're going to have to include all of that on the disc as well, which would include the director's cut of Mass Effect 3, which helped the ending a fair, a fair bit. Mm-hmm. I wonder how it will be on Switch, because I have heard that the Switch is included amongst the platforms. I really hope it's a situation where it comes out really well on the Switch and I can play it on the Switch. That would make me very happy. I mean, given that these games are all from the previous generation, I think that it'll be fine on Nintendo Switch. I hope so. I feel like Switch uh, uh, adaptions are usually hit or miss no matter what the content is. I mean, if you put a game like The Witcher 3 or more of a modern game like The Outer Worlds or that kind of thing, Witcher 3 and Outer Worlds are the same generation, but whatever, mm. you're going to have a harder time and you're going to have to make a lot more compromises. But the Switch, you know, it's a souped up, it's better than the Wii U, right? But True. it's still kind of in that halfway space between last gen and the current gen. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the Switch Pro is supposedly coming out early next year. I mean, you could have something that is basically a ps4 and then in that case mass effect trilogy would look great on the on the switch pro yeah i'm really curious about these switch pro rumors and they're making me feel kind of dizzy because we have so many so many consoles to choose from now yeah i'm spending so much money on all of this stuff i spent like 500 bucks on a ps4 or ps5 or whatever and i'm gonna end up buying an xbox series x and now i'm gonna switch pro it's like 1500 dollars worth of gaming hardware yeah, that's a lot of money, and it's not like I'm, I'm, you know, Richie Rich over here. And especially when you consider Canadian dollars, they really jack it up. I, I think we're looking at six thirty for the PS Five Disc Edition up here. Yeah, if you want to play the premium version of games these days, you're gonna really have to shell out a lot of money. Though the good yeah. news is that so many games, uh, especially indie games, are fairly moderately priced. So. One way or another, you can pretty much play games at no matter like how much money you're actually making. I think I discussed this last week. I really, really hate to be part of the whole diminishing uh, medium of discs and everything and how they're all just kind of fading away alongside game preservation. But it's so much cheaper and I just don't buy games anymore. I just go whoop and I download because I am lazy. I tried to buy the digital version of the PS5 and it sold out almost instantly which makes me wonder if there was a very limited run where the disc version was still in stock pretty, like it remained on stock for a while on Walmart. So uh, I thought it was interesting. Like I couldn't even get to the checkout with the PS5 Slim or digital version. Yeah, I feel like this generation is going to be a huge scramble for trying to even get these consoles. Um, I was looking around for a place that did pre-orders in Canada. Didn't find anybody that might have changed by the time I gave up. But uh, with the COVID virus and everything screwing up production, it's I feel like the people who grab PS5s and Xboxes are, are going to be the lucky ones. Yeah, I think the outside of the initial allotment, scarcity might be quite a problem for a while. Oh, God. Remember when the PS2 came out and people were putting on, on eBay for thousands of dollars and people were buying? 
I mean, did you see the complete nonsense that was happening with the new NVIDIA graphics cards where the 3080 sold out almost instantaneously and people are throwing them on eBay for like $10,000? No joke? Yes, I did. I saw a stream of a guy who was trying to buy it. He couldn't even click the button that said buy. Like it it was just gone. There was no no chance in, in hell whatsoever. I feel bad for those people, but also just wait, for God's sake. (laughs) Yeah, I feel kind of like I have FOMO right now, but I'm also like, well, there's nothing I really need right this instant for the next generation of systems. My biggest game that I want right now is Final Fantasy 16, and that's not coming out until next year at least. So I I can wait until the fire settles down a little bit. The thing that's kind of a drag is that there are going to be scalpers out there who sit there with their bots. Like, I yes. remember when the, the SNES Classic and the NES Classic shortages were a thing, where people were just hovering around these sites with bots and would buy, like, 50 units immediately and then just sell them on eBay for huge markups. And I mean, it's kind of gross behavior. And anybody who's sitting there trying to manually click, they're just going to lose because the bots are going to beat them every time. Yeah, anybody who wants to just kind of buy a nice console like capitalism is supposed to allow us to do is not <laughs> going to be able to get that chance. And it's very, very frustrating. Uh, I don't have the, the, the time to sit around and wait for to beat out a scalper with a, with a bot. That's ridiculous. It's not going to happen. So I'm just going to have to wait till things settle down a little bit. Well, as we are talking about the PlayStation 5 right now, let's get right to it, Nadia. The PlayStation 5 had its big showcase event. It confirmed the price. It is going to be $399 for the digital version, $499 for the disc version. The $499 version is equivalent to the Xbox Series X, whereas the digital version is $100 more than the Xbox Series S. Heavy rumors that Sony was scrambling at the last minute to change the price and is going to be taking a bit of a hit. My recollection is that the PS5 is actually more powerful than the Xbox Series X in a lot of ways. There's been a lot of talk about the SSD being superior and whatnot. So it's almost like the Xbox is kind of a the budget option. But in the meantime, as I was saying on in an article over on US Gamer, I'm of the opinion that Xbox is pricing these consoles to sell because they're not really a hardware manufacturer anymore, Nadia. They're more of a service provider with the Xbox Game Pass. Yeah, Microsoft is definitely more of a service provider than a hardware manufacturer these days. So you're right about them being priced to sell. And of course, Microsoft, can, if they're taking a hit on that, they can, they can take it. They don't care. Sony, I could see them scrambling to say, oh, my God, we can't have another 599 US dollars incident right here and right now. We got to fix this. So I'm assuming they did the best they can. But uh, that's still a lot of money. It's interesting to see the difference between Microsoft and Sony because For a long time, PlayStation was a relatively small part of Sony's business, and now it's the biggest part, and basically runs Sony in a lot of ways. Whereas Mm. over at Microsoft, it's still all about the enterprise software. They have so many different irons in the fire. They have their cloud technology and whatnot. Xbox is only kind of their small, like one part of an absolutely enormous machine. So Microsoft... It looked a little bit like they were kind of moving away from the Xbox, like there were some serious question marks about whether or not they would sell the brand or spin it off or something. And now they're recommitting to it, and Microsoft can just basically shrug away any of the losses because they're trying to become the Netflix of games. 
yes, they definitely want to push that Game Pass. And to be fair, the Game Pass is an extremely tempting offer. Uh, that's going to be a, a huge factor in how we play and distribute games in the future. I didn't quite understand what PlayStation for sorry PlayStation Five was doing with their not really their imitator but their answer to Game Pass. Something about retro games on the PS Five and you need a subscription for it. Uh, did you get that part? It's the PlayStation Plus collection, Navia. So basically, the way it works is, from what I'm able to suss out. If you have a PlayStation Plus subscription and you buy a PS5, you will instantly get access to like 20 different PS4 games. And they're right. like really good ones too, like Last of Us Remastered and uh, God of War and oh, Persona, Persona 5 is in there. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. So that's not exactly Game Pass, but it is something, I suppose. It, it is something, but honestly... When it comes to its actual services, Sony is enormously behind, and I think that it is going to become kind of obvious as time goes on what a better value the Xbox Game Pass provides compared to what Sony has on offer. Because Sony only has PS4 back backward compatibility, whereas the Xbox has all of the games. Yeah, it's pretty crazy what Xbox has. So on that note, Nadia, one of the main talking points for the PS5 was the fact that so many of those games were also coming on the PlayStation 4. They weren't PS5 exclusives after all, like Miles Morales. They just kind of casually drop. Oh, yeah, it's also coming on a PS4. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, this is, this is our best game. This is our showcase game. Oh, it's coming out on the PS4, too, so don't worry. <laughs> it, it's kind of more reason to wait a little bit because, once again, we're seeing diminishing returns, I feel, with a lot of these games. Um, the jump from the PS3 to PS4 was pretty substantial. There was a really good, for example, when you were playing Battlefield 4, if you played on the Xbox 360, you had much smaller player counts when you were playing online and stuff. It was mm -hmm. obvious the power of the PS4, whereas I know that the PS5 is not gonna have loading times, it's going to have ray tracing, it's gonna have various like appreciable graphical upgrades, but so many of the people, so many people, A, don't have 4K TVs to really appreciate the power of what the PS5 can actually provide. And you really have to, in some ways, squint to see the difference between a PS4 and a PS5 game. Yeah, I'm sure that the differences will come to the fore as developers get more familiar with the with the hardware. It's funny, this generation, this, this transition reminds me, um, I don't know if you recall, when we were going from 16 bits to 32 bits, you had several developers who put their their 16-bit uh, games on 32 bits as well. And sometimes they upgraded the graphics and the sound. Sometimes they just ported. Uh, Capcom, as I recall, put Mega Man X3 on PC in Japan. And they just basically added fancier music and uh, really cool anime cutscenes that were awesome to see for the time. But this kind of reminds me of that awkward era where everyone's just like, okay... Do I put this on the PS5? Do I put this on the PS4? Do I do both? Uh, I guess we. I guess every generation has that sort of scramble. And I expect maybe as the generation goes on, you're absolutely right, we are seeing diminishing returns, but we will get to a place where we're playing PS5 and we look back at PS4 and we won't be like, oh my god, that's hideous, but we will be like, oh, I definitely see an, an appreciable difference over here. I mean, yeah, compare Last of Us 2 to Last of Us on the PlayStation 3. I mean... The graphical leap is quite impressive, in my opinion. Yeah, so, yeah, definitely. 
I mean, if you look at Xbox 360 and PS3 games now, especially early generation PS3, Xbox 360 games, it's always kind of amazing to me how bland the textures are. Yeah, I remember actually the first time I saw an Xbox 360 game, I went into a game store and some guy was playing it. And I wasn't very impressed. And mm. uh, he was playing Dead or Alive. And one of the characters' hair was clipping through her shoulder really, really badly. <laughs> like, welcome to the next generation, I suppose. I remember thinking Battlefield 2 looked really good on the Xbox 360. But at the same time, I remember going into Best Buys and seeing an Xbox 360 setup and a PS2 setup, right? And the PS2 had Soul Calibur 3. And everybody was huddled around NBA Live. And I was standing there looking at it and going, I can't really tell the difference between PS2 games. Anyway, I'm going to play some Soul Calibur now. <laughs> In the end, it comes down to how they play, I suppose. But then a couple of years later, I played Bioshock, and my mind was legitimately blown by how good yeah. it looked compared to anything on the PS2 or the DS. There you go. You have that one game, that one developer that comes out with something that just really takes advantage of the new hardware, and then your the bar is lifted, and it just kind of goes from there. Was there a game in this current generation when it came out that you were like, yes, this generation has arrived? I can't even remember, <laughs> to be honest with you. Uh, what about you? Maybe Metal Gear Solid Five. That was that's a good example because that really that really did kind of give you that big detailed open world that you wouldn't really have gotten on the PS3. I mean, there was also Dragon Age Inquisition, but I just remember 2015 was kind of the year that we could definitely say that PS4 and Xbox One were worth buying at that point, because 2015 was when Fallout 4 came out, it was when Witcher 3 came out, it was when Bloodborne came out, it was when MGS5 came out. I think Undertale came out that year, maybe? Was that five years ago? Then yes. Yeah, so... (laughs) I mean, that wasn't next gen, but you get what I'm saying. Like, the yeah, current of generation of games had fully arrived by 2015. So, yeah. That's why I'm kind of like, oh, you know, 2022. That's when all the big ones are going to be arriving on Xbox. And I'm sure that's when PS5 is going to be having its big guns as well. Yeah, it's going to be pretty exciting when it happens. So, you know, when I look at the PS5's launch lineup, so it's going to have Demon's Souls. That's a big one, I think. That is their big tech showcase uh, from Bluepoint Games. Mm -hmm. I just, as as I was already saying, I hope it's good for their sake because Souls fans are notoriously, uh, how should I say, finicky. Yeah, they will rip you apart. if They will rip Bluepoint apart if they don't see what they want to see. Uh, Spider-Man Miles Morales is basically a, I mean, it's kind of like Uncharted Lost Legacy, right? Where it's kind of a shorter version of the, uh, it's kind of almost like a spinoff. Yeah, like you get games like that occasionally. Like I think, uh, I think Galaxy 2 would count as a a spinoff that's a standalone game too. And then they were also teasing games like God of War. They were teasing Horizon. And... The main takeaway that I had was that Sony is basically just running it all back, going exclusives are going to carry the day, and we're going to have uh, better games out of the gate than the Xbox will. And for the most part, they're right. Like I don't, when I look at the Xbox's lineup right out right away, I don't see any like real system sellers. Yeah, um, I totally agree. I think that Sony. Um if I had to choose between the Xbox and the PlayStation 5 today, I would definitely go with the PlayStation 5 because you just have those exclusives that are just going to be on Sony. And if they come to Xbox, it won't be for a very long time. So uh, I'm just going to go with the old faithful, I suppose. 
Though it's funny because Demon's Souls is the only one that I really care about of all those exclusives. And I'm not the biggest, like, Souls fan. I can't really say, yeah. actually, I'm not a fan. I haven't given a good try to, say, Bloodborne, but I, I, I'm not over here really excited about Demon's Souls. What's funny is that Demon's, the Souls games aren't system sellers. They're very popular. They created their own genre. They definitely have tons of currency in the current era, but also they're kind of a hardcore niche. They're not on the level of like a GTA or whatever. Yeah, it's not the kind of game that uh, someone who walks in and says, I want a PS5, what's on it? And they see a game called Demon's Souls, and they're like, wow, that sounds as generic as hell, and they pass it over, you know? Whereas GTA has has major selling power just by its name alone. So I bought a PS5, Nadia, right away, but that's because I'm in the games industry. If I were not in the games industry, I would feel extremely comfortable waiting on both. Yeah, I'm in the games industry too, and I might have to wait on both because those prices are not cheap. <laughs> Though I would consider getting Xbox Series S at 300 bucks, just because yeah. $300 is really affordable, like relatively speaking. I mean, I know I know there are plenty of people for whom $300 is not affordable at all. But yeah. it is great because you can get this little thing, you get the Game Pass, you have the streaming options, you'll be able to play all of the next-gen games, and it just seems like the best possible kind of compromise if you really want to buy into next-gen right away. Yeah, uh, when I get my Xbox, that's the one I'm going to be aiming for, but my husband is probably going to want the disc one, so Mm. uh, to be determined, I suppose. I'm kind of glad that I got the disc version ultimately because... It occurred to me that I still import games like Super Robot Wars, and yeah, of course. it's practically, it's very hard to be able to get them from Japanese PSN. You need to have a Japanese username and an account and everything, which is annoying to set up. So Yeah, it would be. So I would much rather just import the disc, so that makes my life easier if I just have a PS5. Not that Super Robot Wars is coming out for PS5 until, I don't know, 2025 or something. <laughs> <laughs> do it for super robot wars cat take spend that extra cash but when it does i'll be ready you'll be prepared like like a warrior and meanwhile in like 10 years at the same time though like disc discless versions all digital is the future we're gonna look at disc based mm. games like we look at blu-rays now you know i was watching mad max fury road the other day i had to fish it out of my cabinet and i was like <laughs> Everybody, this is not a drill. I am watching a Blu-ray. <laughs> Just like going to your cabin like a peasant and, and, and putting it in the, the slot like, ew, I can't believe I'm doing this. Ugh. can't believe I'm watching a Blu-ray like those scumbags. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness me. What was annoying was that there was some kind of weird audio mixing issue with the Blu-ray. I couldn't really figure it out. So the sound was really loud but the dialogue was so quiet that i could barely hear anybody i hate that why do movies do that it drives me up the wall i think that if you go into the audio settings you can make it better um it's just all about your audio setup and everything yeah and i think maybe they kind of default for people with super duper setups and that's not me yeah all right nadia let's talk about some of the rpgs that were actually shown we've already talked about demon souls but the big one the big new game that I don't believe is coming out on PS4, though I could be wrong. It's a new Harry Potter open-world action RPG, which is already controversial because J.K. Rowling, ooh, boy, oh my gosh, J.K. Yeah. Rowling. 
when I saw that trailer, I said, oh, dear. And I feel so bad for the developers because mm. they're not responsible for her her trash on Twitter. And they probably started this game ages before she decided she had to tweet everything in her head. So uh, I do feel for them. I feel for anyone who has to make this choice because it's it, it, it that's what it comes down to, I think, is this personal choice. And it's, it's really hard. There's no... There's no ethical consumption under capitalism, as they say. Yeah. And everything is... With the, with the way we have social media, it's so open and obvious how creators are. Many, many are perfectly decent, good people. Some have decided to die on a hill and be a turf. So just to kind of use a personal example, like I loved Roald Dahl as a kid. And then, you know, I found out he hated Jews. And I'm like, oh... I, my little eight-year-old heart shattered because I loved Charlie and the Chocolate Factory so much. And at some point, I made the decision for myself. Well, he's he's trash, but I still like Fantastic Mr. Fox. So I'm going to sit here and read it. Yeah. And so that's what it comes down to. Are you okay with it? And I will not condemn your decision one way or the other because there's only one that you can make. And it's a really sucky decision that we have to make. And I especially feel for millennials because they really, really grew up with Harry Potter and have been dreaming about a game of like this where you can be in Hogwarts and be a student and make potions. And it really it really does look good and looks a lot of fun. I'm not a huge Harry Potter fan, so I can do without. But someone like Katie, like she was just heartbroken yesterday about the whole thing. I wish it had come out five years ago when I didn't know exactly. about J.K. Rowling's poisonous views. <laughs> Exactly. If, if What a shame. If it had come out like five years earlier, it's just like, oh, yay, Hogwarts. Hooray, we're all going to Hogwarts. I mean, yeah, What as you were saying, Nadia, I don't begrudge anybody who's like, I can't play this because J.K. Rowling is going to profit from it. And she's awful. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah. I personally have soured a little bit on Harry Potter anyway, because the Fantastic Beasts movies are so bad. I never saw them, but I've heard they're just complete trash. I mean... Even before J.K. Rowling came out as a full turf, she showed, like, just how narrow she is when it comes to world building. She understands British history pretty well, it seems like, at least from my superficial understanding as an American. But when she tried to make American an American version of the Wizarding World, oh, my God. Oh, <laughs> And do they all like summon pizzas and hot dogs? No, it's based, get, out, get this, on Native American mysticism. Oh, that can't go wrong. Yeah. It's just like when you were reading it, you were like, oh, no. Because, I mean, she's British. She doesn't understand all the, like, historical context and everything that's going on there. So she we just... We have Google now. I mean, you have Google. You have presumably very well-paid uh, consultants who are going to be like, yeah. she didn't write that. But, <laughs> you know, she she evolved past the need for editors a long time ago. So Yes. That's one of the biggest problems I had with her books because I read the first three and I'm like, oh, these are so much fun. And then after four, I was just like, uh, what happened to your editor? Did you kill him? Is he in the Chamber of Secrets? Outside of England, outside of the British version of Harry Potter, all of her various versions of the magic academies in different countries basically boil down to like the tequila Gundam from G Gundam. She just goes <laughs> with national stereotypes for all of them. Is there a Canadian Hogwarts where everyone's lumberjacks and lives in igloos? That's basically what it is. If you want to keep your sanity, don't read about the Japanese Hogwarts. Oh, no, that must be a disaster area. Oh, oh it's it's bad. It is bad. <laughs> oh, that is... That, come on, woman. You have Google right there. You, have, you can afford consultants, as you said. And 
it's fine to pay tribute to other cultures, of course, but be respectful. I was a Harry. I was a huge Harry Potter fan, and to some extent, I still am. Like, I still have a of lot course. of love in my heart for the. I think very positive messages that the series has about inclusiveness. I mean, freaking Nazis are the bad guys in those yeah. books. Like she's fighting whites. They're fighting white supremacists. It has a very explicitly anti-classist message throughout the entire mm-hmm. series. I appreciate all of that. Like I want to focus on all that. I consider myself a proud Hufflepuff, as annoying as that sounds. And <laughs> I understand. You know, once upon a time, the Harry Potter books presented this compelling, escapist, fun place to escape to, right? Um, Yes. Repeating the word escape over and over again. But at a certain point, like between the Fantastic Beasts books and J.K. Rowling just being awful, it's just been like, oh, okay. All right, let's talk about the actual game. So it's set in the late 1800s. It's being developed by Avalanche. Um, J.K. Rowling is "quote unquote" not directly involved, which I believe <laughs> they were. They were very fast about getting that message out there. <laughs> but she's also profiting from it, so whatever. Oh, absolutely. Anything licensed by Harry, anything licensed to Harry Potter goes to her. There's no question. I just have to say that I find it obnoxious how WB took Harry Potter, which is a very fine series of books, and decided to turn it into freaking Star Wars. Yeah, they, and they also kind of sucked a lot of the color out of that series, I yes. think. Well, I think it's the so problem dull. is they went with the they decided that the look that was established in movie 5 by mm. I think it was David Yates was yes. the definitive look of the series going forward. And I don't like that look. It looks kind of cheap. It yeah. it doesn't look real to me, right? And no. so I just I have a hard, a really hard time engaging with the overall look of the movies. I didn't like the look of the movies when I saw the first one because I was like, oh, this isn't, any, this isn't anything like how it was in my, my head. Exactly. You know, at the first time going back to Charlie and Chocolate Factory, the first time I saw the movie, you know, the classic Gene Wilder, I was like, this is trash. It doesn't look anything like what I yeah. imagined. Yeah. <laughs> just All the right. way it is. So the description is you're... Character is a student who holds the key to an ancient secret that threatens to tear the wizarding world apart. You've received a late acceptance to the Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry and soon discover that you are no ordinary student, Nadia. You possess an unusual ability to perceive and master ancient magic. Only you You're can... a wizard. <laughs> <laughs> You're a wizard, Harry. You're a wizard, only you can decide if you will protect the secret for the good of all or yield to the temptation of more sinister magic. So it's going to end up having a light side, dark side morality meter. Of course. You're going to be good or you're going to be a Slytherin. So they're <laughs> kind of going full KOTOR with this series. Oh, good point. Yes. Mm. Um, it does sound intriguing. And like I said, I really feel for people who have to make this decision. So whatever you do, you do it in your heart. And you're definitely going to be able to choose your house. Because if you look of at course. the different things, it's like, be a Ravenclaw, be a Hufflepuff who masters herbology, be a Slytherin who rides a griffin, you know, be a Slytherin and go full fascist, whatever. How come the Slytherins get to do something as cool as riding a griffin and the Hufflepuffs are stuck <laughs> with plants? That's crap. I can just say that I side-eye anybody who is a self-identified Slytherin because it's like, did you actually read the books? Do you realize <laughs> who the Slytherins are supposed to be? They're awful yeah. racist old money in England. At least uh, some of the Slytherins turned out okay, but uh, not a lot. The Slytherins were J.K. Rowling pushing back against the classism of England. That's what it was. And you're like, you know who I identify 
the inbred weirdo uh, old money aristocrats. That's who I identify yeah, with. They are kind of all inbred, aren't they? And that's why they're a little bit, a little bit cuckoo. Like at literally, times. like that was the point is that they are so obsessed with breeding with other people who are pure blood that they are literally inbred. So ew, don't marry your cousins. Nothing good comes of it. That's what they do. They're they're marrying their cousins. Ugh, gross. Magic can't magic can't help you if you. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I'm going to play this game. Open world action RPG sounds fine to me. The setting seems fine. I like that it's 100 years before. That's um, cool. I like that idea. I like that it's not in the Fantastic Beasts universe. I think Avalanche is a fine developer and it will be beautiful. I don't think Avalanche has created anything that's like truly amazing. But by and large, they create pretty solid open world games. So I feel like this Harry Potter game, all of the JK Rowling nonsense notwithstanding, will be good. Yeah, it definitely, like, it had me a little bit interested, and I'm not a huge Harry Potter fan, so I, I think it's going to be pretty huge, regardless, mm-hmm. as you say, of, of uh, Rowling's trashiness, but uh, it is what it is, I suppose. All right, let's talk about, let's move on to the Nintendo Direct that happened. TGS is supposed to be happening, I believe, next week. I was going to be there, yes. Nadia. I'm sad. I know. What what a what an awful hell world we live in. I should have been playing the PS5, interviewing developers. Thanks, Pandemic. <laughs> Thank you. You have really made everything great. <sighs> All right. Anyway, continuing onward, Monster Hunter Rise is a new game for Switch. So I'm gonna, I'm just gonna come right out and say this, Nadia. Monster Hunter isn't an RPG. Even World, you wouldn't count World nah, as an RPG. I nah, thought no, it's did. an action game. Yeah, it's... see, that's true. It is, if anything, maybe action RPG. I mean, it's deeper than Destiny for sure. Like they put a huge premium on the actual builds. And so in that case, in that sense, I think it really straddles the line because it puts such a huge premium on acquiring loot, building up yes. all of your different sets and everything. But the core of the gameplay is still very focused on the actual action, the actual act of hunting a monster. It's funny, though. Uh, monster Hunter Stories 2, which we're getting, and I'm actually quite excited about, that is the first game anyway, was a turn-based RPG. Mm. So hooray. I didn't play Monster Hunter Stories. I don't know that I'm that interested in Monster Hunter Stories 2, though I, now that I've played Monster Hunter World and loved it, I'm more invested in the world, so maybe? Exactly. Yeah, I find it's a really interesting angle to the world. Uh, I do remember there were some action things that you do with the screen in the first game. I don't know if that's still going to be a thing in the battle system, mm. but the general premise is quite Pokemon-like. You capture monsters' eggs, and you raise them, and they become your friend, and you can ride on them, and you, you go around the world exploring. There's always some mystery to solve, of course, and you go around the world exploring that. You were part of a tribe, as I recall, that doesn't hunt monsters, but rather wants to be friends with them, and they're kind of an outcast tribe because, ew, who wants to be friends with monsters? So I just kind of appreciate the more peaceful message because Monster Hunter, it does get a little bit... Uh, hey, let's, let's call this species sort of uh, vibe from it. <laughs> yeah, Monster Hunter World has some weird themes to it, I gotta say. Um, I was playing Iceborne last night, and my housemate was watching me, and she's like, wow, this looks like a really nice game. I'm like, yeah, I, I absolutely <laughs> love it. It's great. I mean, the Palicos are cute, but you wouldn't like this game because it you feel so bad for the monsters. You really do. Yeah, it's like you're sitting there playing this, this quote-unquote nice game. I just made this race go extinct. But picking up on the theme that I was saying earlier, I think the thing about Monster Hunter that makes it more interesting than Destiny is Destiny is kind of a pure shooter with some hazy RPG elements added to it. 
Whereas I think that Monster Hunter has a lot more in common with MMOs, that it has a little bit of that Diablo aspect to it. I, I think the RPG aspects are much meatier in Monster Hunter than a lot of these other games. So anyway, I also like the series, so I don't mind talking about it because I know that it also appeals to our listeners. Yeah, there are a lot of Monster Hunter fans out there, mm-hmm. uh, especially since World dropped. And I'm not sure about Rise yet. I do love the fact that you can get a quote-unquote Palamute, which is a, a, a dog that helps you. And but apparently you can have either two dogs, two cats, or one dog and one cat. And mm. don't, don't, don't make me make that choice. That's a, that's a hard choice. I kind of want two cats, but I want a dog too, so I don't know. I hope that it's balanced. I think that probably a Palamute and a Palico would be a good balance because a Palico is more of a support unit, whereas a Palamute is more aggressive. Yes, definitely. Um, I actually got a Palico minion in Final Fantasy XIV, so he follows me around. He doesn't do anything, but I love how in Monster Hunter, God, they're basically bait, aren't they? They they, <laughs> they, they torment the monster and distract it, and that's why I love them. They're these little tiny things that just go up against these huge Rathalos and like, hey, hey, stupid, go look over here, and kind of gives you that opening. In Iceborne, they not only are bait, but they also heal you. And oh, good. They have the if you die, they have the ability to just bring you back to life, which is a huge advantage. That would be a huge advantage. Holy crap! I mean, Monster Hunter, the whole thing is about getting slaughtered by monsters and slaughtering monsters. Yeah, eventually, essentially, they give you a mulligan. Though, if you have multiple people in your party, if you go up to four, uh, your palico disappears, which is a bummer. So you don't get oh. the benefit of any of the additional stuff. The palicos are so cute. <laughs> I was going to say, you got to have, if you got four people, you got to have four Palicos doing their thing. Come on. As for the Palamute, it kind of reminds me of Minna from Twilight Princess in the way yes, that you're riding definitely. around. Yeah. And that's one, I, I'll be honest, one thing I love about Monster Hunter World, sorry, Monster Hunter uh, stories is I was kind of just riding around on a, on a Rathalos as a mount. And I just like exotic mounts. I just think they're so cool. So running dog sure i'll take it yeah i like the idea of riding a palamute and chasing after a monster and also it also kind of has a look of the the sword version of the legendary from pokemon sword yeah definitely so there's some uh just some interesting cross genre stuff i feel like going on with both the monster hunter games because uh monster hunter stories 2 definitely has breath of the wild uh, vibes the, the graphics are just straight up Breath of the Wild, which is fine. It's a good choice if you're, if you're doing a Switch game. Uh, so, yeah, Capcom's just kind of dipping their toes into everything. They're doing it well, though, so hey. I'm glad that you mentioned Breath of the Wild because it really seems like Capcom was inspired by Breath of the Wild with this game, especially in the fact that you can seemingly climb everything. The traversal mm-hmm. aspects from Breath of the Wild have definitely worked their way into Monster Hunter Rise. Which is cool, because I some people hated the rock climbing and stuff in, in Zelda. I loved it. It just gave me this feeling that, hey, stupid mountain, you're, not, you're in my way, I'm going to climb you. Because <laughs> mountains and stuff like that, they're usually borders, right? And especially in old RPGs. Oh, you can't cross this. Well, screw you. Yes, I can. The only thing holding you back is your stamina. My stamina and probably the rain, too. And your lack of creativity. <laughs> yeah. So when I look at Monster Hunter Rise, I see a lot of things that I really like. I like the kind of the more Eastern aesthetic. I like the fact that it's using the RE engine. I like that it's keeping the quality of life improvements of Monster Hunter World, but also has Mm -hmm. a little bit of that old school feel. I like the fact that it'll be on Switch, so it's going to be portable, and therefore I can do like more 
local play with various people, which is more in keeping with the versions of Monster Hunter that made it the most successful. It's not going to have that epic scale and scope of Monster Hunter World, but the fact that they were able to modify the RE engine to work with the Nintendo Switch and get it working with the with Monster Hunter is really impressive, and it already looks so much better than Generations Ultimate. I am excited. Is Was the RE engine used for World? RE engine was not used for World, no. So Monster Hunter World was used used the old MT framework, which is a somewhat old engine. Uh, it was introduced in back in the 360 era, uh, back with uh, it was initially intended to power Dead Rising and Lost Planet Extreme Condition only, but it kept being modified and upgraded and everything, and eventually made its way over to Monster Hunter World. Also powered uh, Mega Man 11. I was going to say that engine was actually supposed to power. Uh... Inafune wanted to power his version of, of Mega Man Legends 3 way back. He made it for that reason, apparently, or he, he envisioned it for that reason. It's amazing to me how much better Capcom is than Square at having its own proprietary engines. Whereas, like, yes. I mean, you look at the difference between uh, the RE engine and Crystal Tools, I mean, it's not even comparison. <laughs> yeah, actually, I was recently on an episode of Retronauts. I don't know when it's airing, but keep an ear out for that. We were talking about the Trials of Mana series and how we went into kind of Square Enix's problems back in that rough period uh, in the HG era and just talking about how for the longest time, Square Enix, of course, they built their own engines the way that everyone kind of built their own engines back in the day. But when the West started to make, you know, Unreal and, and everything like that, make things easier, Japan was, especially Square, was very slow to adopt that. So they just kind of made themselves suffer for no reason. It's just amazing to me. So I'm on a real Monster Hunter World kick at the moment. It's amazing to me that it has some of the best Final Fantasy content, this side of Final Fantasy XIV, in a freaking Monster Hunter game from Capcom, which is smaller than Square. Like, Square has to be looking at Monster Hunter World and shaking their fist and going, why isn't that us? <laughs> well, I hope they're inspired then. It's always good when, when companies just kind of take from each other and take the best parts from each other, so... Uh, heck, I mean, I just did the Rathalos hunt in Final Fantasy XIV and got my ass kicked, but uh, it was fun. I mean, it says something that Monster Hunter World, which is built on the MT framework, in my opinion, would still probably blow Final Fantasy XVI out of the water, just superficially looking at it. Like, maybe Final Fantasy XVI will be souped up and everything, but I wasn't very impressed by the character models, let's just say that much. But yeah, we'll get to that in a second. Anyway, yeah. Monster Hunter Rise... Um, there's this weird divide in the Monster Hunter community between people who are, like, grumpy about Monster Hunter World and prefer the old-fashioned Monster Hunters. Yeah, the old-fashioned way. Um, and I'm not going to begrudge that. I think the old Monster Hunter games have a lot to recommend them. And there's always going to be the people who are like, oh, it was better before it went mainstream. When I look at Monster Hunter Rise, I think that it does a great job of splitting the difference between Monster Hunter World and Monster Hunter generations i'm really excited by the new traversal mechanics i like the new mounts i think this is going to be a winner and i can't wait for it to come out on nintendo switch uh, early next year possibly on the switch pro yeah, possibly on the switch pro yeah that's uh, that's quite possible at this point i too am looking forward to rise as you say um, one thing that gives me a little bit of hope is that it does kind of keep those quality of life improvements from world because I found that world was, was a little bit difficult on its own as it was. So 
I'm glad that they're sticking to the fact that, well, we'll keep it as manageable as possible. Uh, so I will definitely be giving it a try. I, I really did like World. I, I should get back into it. Um, and yeah, I, I'm really eager to see how this turns out. And I'm really eager to see how Stories 2 turns out. That should be summer, I think, or fall, something like that. Okay, Nadia, that is some of the major RPGs that have been announced in the past week. But we haven't been the biggest one of all. And we're going to do that right after this break. Don't go away. Okay, Nadia, as we've been kind of anticipating for quite a while, Final Fantasy 16 was officially revealed during the PlayStation 5 stream last week. The new numbered game, it is a medieval kind of looking game. It has heavy Final Fantasy 14 influences. Nadia, you were very excited about it. What is making you so excited? Aside from the fact that you would ride with Yoshi P down to hell and probably uh, like fight to his side until the very end. That was basically, I was going to bring up that the tweet that you just referenced when someone said on Twitter that their timeline was split into, well, I don't know about this Final Fantasy 16. It doesn't look that great. And the other side, people who have played Final Fantasy 14 are just like, I would, I would ride with Yoshi P into hell and I will defend him and this game until the very end. So I am definitely excited to play a mainline Final Fantasy that is not just headed by Yoshi P, but got, I think it's headed, rumor has it that it's headed by the team that did Heavensward, the, the expansion, which frankly has one of, if not my favorite Final Fantasy story ever. So I'm really excited to see what they'll write. And I'm really, I'm, I'm really kind of impatient for people to finally see I understand, okay, you don't like playing Final Fantasy XIV, that's fine, the engines, the, the system is not for everyone, but I'm eager to see if we can get like a Final Fantasy XIV quality story in a mainline Final Fantasy game, and just, people are looking at this game saying, oh, this is, this is Game of Thrones, it's so edgy, it's so stupid, no, you don't understand how good the story is in XIV, I'm so excited to see if it will finally carry over, and people can see, hey, this is a really, really good. St- this is a really good story that I'm I'm reading right now, and I believe that even the localizer, uh, Michael Koji Fox, might be on this project because I recognize some of his terminologies and styles. So, God, if if this is what we're getting, and I know it's not the most impressive looking game in the world, I feel like people are going to be really impressed when it finally does come out. So I'm going to say some nice things about Final Fantasy 16 to start. <laughs> to start, <laughs> do a compliment sandwich. Uh, Final Fantasy 16, uh, I like the fact that it's going to more of a high fantasy kind of look than yeah, the I'm glad for that. increasingly kind of a garish and obnoxious futuristic future tech worlds that we were seeing in Final Fantasy 15 and Final Fantasy 13. It gives me a little bit of Final Fantasy 12 vibes in Definitely, the way that the yeah. characters interact with one another. It seems to have a little bit of the, this political aspect to it. Um, Definitely. It seems darker than a lot of previous Final Fantasy games. I mean, you saw at one point the blood splashing on young Joshua's face and how he goes crazy and everything. I mean, that was kind of cool. You don't see blood in Final Fantasy games very much. No, that's one thing I feel like Final Fantasy XIV and Final Fantasy VII Remake to a lesser extent kind of humanized the 
the characters, and this is something I wrote about on the site. It's literally called Final Fantasy XIV is horny, and I support it because I feel like it's the first time Final Fantasy game uh, Final Fantasy characters are humans. Like they, you 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 see the blood, you see the references to sex. It doesn't go like overboard at any point. It's all very well balanced, but everyone feels more like a character and a person than just like a a, a nice dress up doll. It looks like a proper open world Final Fantasy game as opposed to. Maybe a lot more refined and deeper than Final Fantasy fifteen. Yeah, it definitely it it allows itself to be a little grittier, I think, versus having that that sheen that modern Final Fantasy games tend to have. Now I'm going to say some things that I don't like about it. <laughs> of course, I don't really like the look of the battle system. It looks worse than Final Fantasy fifteen. Yeah, I don't know what's going on with the battle system. Apparently, I can't remember the name of the developer, but the developer who worked on Devil May Cry five. Uh, is working on the battle system along with other people who have worked on action-based battle systems. So I'm glad it has the the names and and talent behind it. But though he must have I, come in relatively late. You think so? Yeah, I mean, Devil May Cry Five came out last year, right? Right, right. I see what you're saying. Um, I think both of us though were hoping for a more menu-based option. It's funny how I said to Katie, "Well, if you want a menu-based RPG, uh, you can play Yakuza Seven. <laughs> but yep. I mean, even if they had just wholesale lifted Final Fantasy VII Remake's battle system and dropped it into this game, I would have been pretty happy if they had done that. I am surprised that they did not do that because, yes, Final Fantasy VII's battle system is basically the perfect compromise, and I'm a little surprised that they didn't use it. I get annoyed with Final Fantasy when the characters are flying around through the sky like they're in the Matrix. <laughs> yes, that's great. Yeah. I also, I find it interesting that it doesn't seem to be party-based. Of course, this is one trailer. Who knows what will change? But it looked like Mm. it was very much one-on-one so far. I think that it's interesting that it might be bringing back jobs in some way. I mean, they had a Dragoon, which, I mean, okay, Dragoons are in like every Final Fantasy in one way or another. But this was a Dragoon Dragoon. This wasn't like a fully armored uh, Dragoon. You actually see them in Final Fantasy XIV. And that's pretty much what it looked like. Uh, the idea being, apparently, that if a dragon eats you, you can tear it up on the way out. I I think it's interesting. Okay, so this is getting more into neutral territory. I think it's interesting that it's going, it seems to be very summon-focused once again. Uh, they've really have been leaning into that lately with, in a lot of different Final Fantasy games. And it seems like the summons are almost tied to people like Personas. Yes, um, I definitely, I, I love the summons in Final Fantasy. It's one of my favorite things, even though I'd never played the summoner, cast, the summoner class. Hmm. But yes, that's one thing people were, another thing people were saying that that's a, that is Final Fantasy XIV's influence because that is, that story revolves a lot around uh, native beast tribes summoning uh, their primal summons to, to deal with their problems and it just makes more problems. So... I kind of like the idea that we have summons. They're part of this world. It doesn't look like they're always a great part of this world. It looks like they cause problems in the way they do with Final Fantasy fourteen. And I also like the line about how, I'm just paraphrasing here, but the character said the crystals have ruled our society long enough. So they're rejecting this, this, this pillar of the Final Fantasy series, which is the crystals, and saying, well, we're turning away from those. And I find that very intriguing. What is... What are they rejecting? Why are they rejecting? Are they the good guys for doing this? Or are they the bad guys for doing this? So I'm curious to see where it goes. I mean, Final Fantasy has rejected the crystals since Final Fantasy V. So I mean... <laughs> Did they reject the crystals in five? No, in five they were blowing up for reasons. That's true. They, they were, then they turned to shards and you can get, like, <laughs> you can get jobs that way for reasons. Yeah, yeah that's basically it. 
And then in Final Fantasy VI, the crystals became just basically not a thing anymore. And basically now they only get referenced as kind of a nod to older games. So I almost... So it's funny, we're like, uh, rejecting the legacy of the crystal. I'm like, well, yeah, you've been doing that for 25 years at this point. Well, it's not so much the legacy of the crystals, but the fact that maybe they live in a universe where the crystal determine everything, which is something that still happens in, say, like the Bravely Default games, and they're turning their backs on it for some reason. Do crystals play a role in Final Fantasy XIV in a lot of meaningful way? It does, yes. There is actually a mention in fourteen and mm. in the Final Fantasy sixteen trailer of the Mother Crystal, quote-unquote, which is uh, basically a big-ass crystal that uh, I, I don't know the exact nature of it because I haven't gone that far in the game, but there are definitely crystals in, in fourteen. They're a big part of it. Crystals are actually how the Beast Tribes summon their their primal uh, gods to, to help them deal with problems. So, yeah, crystals are, are a big issue. I think it's worth pointing out that it seems that Final Fantasy 16 is running on crystal tools again, and that might explain why it has that real Final Fantasy 14 look to it, and as a consequence, kind of has a last-gen look to it as a PS5 game. Yeah. Uh, admittedly, when I saw the trailer, I thought it looked fine, but then someone said, well, you've been playing a lot of 14, and mm. this is obviously a kind of a souped-up 14. I said, oh, you're absolutely right. So 14 certainly doesn't look bad. It looks great, but... It definitely doesn't have that, oh my god, this is next-gen look, because it's it's kind of a game that's, ex- that's expanded across different consoles, different generations. So maybe that's just the style they're adopting, and maybe as we get closer to release, we'll get more polish. Because I remember Final Fantasy VII, our remake, looked it looked rough at points, and when they brought out the more trailers they gave us and further along in development, the better it looked, so it might be the case here. It stood out to me when I went back and watched the trailers for Final Fantasy XIII and XV when they were first revealed. It stood out to me how much harder those two games hit than Final Fantasy XVI did. And I think a lot of it, some of it at least, was to do with the fact that the characters just looked more interesting. I think the character models in XVI are a little bit generic, like more so even than Final Fantasy XV in a lot of respects. And I don't know, like... And those games also really showcased the next-gen vibe of the consoles that they were going. Like, Final Fantasy XIII looked like an incredible PS3 game at the yeah, time. It did. Like, people were like, holy crap, this is showcasing the power of the PS3. This is amazing that this is all happening in real time. And with Final Fantasy XV, it was kind of the same deal. It's like, oh, this looks like a really good-looking game. Um, it's very impressive. And with sixteen, it's kind of like, eh, no, no, we're just here to tell a good story. Yeah, I don't know. Um, Maybe graphics aren't everything. That's that, and also it doesn't help that I was watching on a 1080p monitor, and I think like a lot of people are, and I think not being able to watch this in 4K makes a difference. That's a good point as well. Um, but then you, th- you just said the kind of the, the secret words there. Gameplay. It all comes down to gameplay because mm-hmm. yes, Final Fantasy 13 looks incredible, but it's not exactly a, a, a widespread favorite. No. 15 had a lot more love to it, but um, let's be honest, parts of it were kind of a mess because it came into so many problems with development. So uh, 16, it might look a little more generic, but um, it already looks like it's going to be solidly put together. So heck, who knows? I mean, I have a hard time saying whether or not it will be solidly put together because it. I don't know. I don't know much about this game at this mm-hmm, point. That's true. As for Yoshida and company... I sort of look at them, like, I I have a lot of faith that they're going to do a great job. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's what it comes down to. It's like, okay, even if this game did have troubled development because God knows what Square game doesn't, Yoshi P saved Final Fantasy XIV. Not just saved it, he he elevated it to one of the, the best Final Fantasy games in the series. The singular he, bright spot of Final Fantasy outside of Remake in the past, what, 10 years? Yeah, exactly. Like, he, he just revitalized the franchise, the, the MMORPG, and he might have saved Square itself with that because they were really, really in trouble with fourteen. I want to go that far. <laughs> well, the, he, he he saved a, a, a certain... He, he put a bandage on them. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a big bandage. I mean, that, Final Fantasy XIV exactly was a... Final Fantasy fourteen would have been a colossal failure if they had actually had to cancel that. Like, you think yeah. about how much they've gotten out of Final Fantasy fourteen. They probably gave freaking Yoshi P a medal. Hope they gave him multiple so. medals. <laughs> I hope he has like a, he's decorated like a general and he walks around the Square Enix offices like that. One thing that's worth pointing out is Hiroshi Takai of Last Remnant is directing. I am not a huge fan of Last Remnant. I know it has its fans. So uh, we'll see. Like, yeah, my recollection of Last Remnant is needless, needless complexity married with a lot of technical problems. But that was also <laughs> that was also like 2008, 2009, mm. back kind of during the battle days of Square trying to adjust to new engines. They were working with the Unreal Engine for the first time. Um, and I think that maybe with a different development team, uh, his good ideas will come out rather than having to struggle through it. So also, if I, I recall so. correctly, Last Remnant was developed by, kind of by like this Young Turks group from Square as almost as an experimental thing, whereas this time around, Final Fantasy XVI is obviously a mainline entry in one of their most important series. So I think they're yeah. going. it's going to be a lot more better supported than Last Remnant was. Probably. I mean, you're looking at a team of veterans now, so hmm. yeah. God, it's been like 15 years. Dang. I know. So one thing that stands out to me, Nadia, about Final Fantasy is that over the past, I don't know, 20 years or so, it's been in, uh, Final Fantasy has kind of ushered in each new console generation. And I just wanted to really quickly kind of revisit each one and talk a little bit about the legacy. So the first one, uh, Final Fantasy X was announced in 2000 at Square's wow. Millennium Event. Alongside Final Fantasy IX and Final Fantasy Eleven, this was Square at its kind of its peak dominance, right? When Square, yeah, it was just Square firing was, on all cylinders, just yeah, boom. I don't think the movie had come out and flopped yet. <laughs> they were still young and hopeful. Yeah, Gamespot <laughs> called it the Shenmue of the PlayStation Two. Uh, I guess that's in a good. That way. That was a compliment at the time. <laughs> okay, that was a compliment. That's right. Okay, <laughs> my my mind just blue screened there for a second. And Final Fantasy X, apparently Final Fantasy X did not start out as a Final Fantasy game. I did not really know that. I thought that was interesting. That happens to a lot of Final Fantasy games. Like, I'm researching Final Fantasy IV right now for reasons, and yeah, I forgot. That didn't start out, well, it didn't start out as a Final Fantasy game either, or, or it split off into Secret of Mana in some regard, and, and other parts of it became Chrono Trigger. It's, it's, the development process is weird. It was subsequently released in late 2001 in North America, and it gave the PS2 one of the greatest holiday seasons of all time. I would call, I would call Final Fantasy X a win, wouldn't you, Nadia? Oh, definitely. We were just talking about how the PlayStation 2 was scalped all to hell. So, yeah, people really wanted that game and that system. Yeah, it came out December 17th, so right before Christmas, Ooh, actually. Probably a lot of happy kids that Christmas. Yeah, I mean, Final Fantasy X, I think, at least helped 
cement the PS2 dominance. I remember at the time being more impressed by Halo and thinking that Final... I remember thinking Final Fantasy X looked really beautiful mm. um, and everything. But at the same time, like, I was kind of focused on the GameCube and the Xbox and, like, in the narrative that the PS2 was a bit less powerful than either of them. So right. I was side-eyeing Final Fantasy X a little <laughs> bit. But it ended up being very successful. And when I played it a year later, I ended up went loving it. So it was announced... Okay, so Final Fantasy Thirteen we already kind of mentioned. It was announced in 2006 alongside Final Fantasy Versus Thirteen and Agito Thirteen as a PS3 exclusive. And this is where Square was kind of going awry at the time, I would say, Nadia. <laughs> yeah. They, I was just trying to think. Agito Thirteen. I remember that being announced, but what did that become Final Fantasy Type-0 or whatever it was? It did, yes. Final Fantasy Agito 13 becomes Final Fantasy Type-0, which was released on the PSP and headed up by Hajime Tabata. And it wasn't going to come out in North America, and everybody wanted it to come out in North America because the PSP was dead. And actually, <laughs> yes, Type-0 right. was one game that we did not really bring up, and we probably should have. That would have been an yeah, interesting I to think we, discuss. I think we mentioned it. We were asking about it, like US Gamer asked Tabata about it. And when that happened, they got a ton of letters and that caused Square to greenlight Final Fantasy Type-0 HD and release oh. it on the PS4 and Xbox One. So we're to blame. Yes, that was all us. We can, we can, take, we can take credit for that one. Yeah, I'll, I'll go ahead and take credit for that. So that was the weird history of Agito. And then, of course... Final Fantasy Versus 13 just disappeared for years and years and years. Nobody knew anything about it. And then finally it resurfaces in 2013 as Final Fantasy 15 for the PS4. And that was the game that we all kind of knew. So Final Fantasy 13 was when the beginning of all this horror. <laughs> <laughs> the beginning of the horror show. Welcome to the horror show. I remember that Final Fantasy 15 reveal quite well. God, it was so long ago. I can't believe I'm thinking that was the start of the PlayStation 4 generation? Jeez. Yes. Uh, it was at E3 2013. And in a pre-recorded video, Nomura revealed that Versus 13 had become 15 and that they were also announcing Kingdom Hearts 3. And right. Final Fantasy 15 wouldn't come out until 2016, so three years later. And Kingdom Hearts 3 didn't come out until like last year. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have finally enjoy your generation, I guess. Uh, but I am, yeah, I remember the Kingdom Hearts announcement. Like people, like were crying. They were so so thrilled about that. Uh, do you remember the whole Stella Luna Freya thing? So Stella was originally a character who was going to be in Final Fantasy fifteen, and she seemed like a kind of interesting character, where mm -hmm. she was going to be kind of an enemy or rival to Noctis. And she Ooh. had connections to the spirit realm and everything. And at one point, Noctis actually fights her, but she's kind of a frenemy, I suppose you could mm -hmm. say. Oh, yeah. Um, I liked her design, actually. But then they were having a hard time fitting her into the actual scenario and ultimately dropped her and then changed her into Luna Freya, who was like this uh, childhood friend of Noctis who had a dog and barely shows up <laughs> at all in Final Fantasy Fifteen. Yeah, she has a she's the fiance of Noctis, mm. and I thought they made a kind of a cute couple. But um, they did. well, I won't say anything about what happened. But I will say, the sequence with her and Leviathan was pretty badass. It was. It totally was. But it felt like a real missed opportunity, and you could totally Absolutely. tell that she was shoehorned into the game. 
Yeah, it, it really is a shame because I, I kind of liked her as a character, and I was a, I was a, a little sad that she just sat there healing people, <laughs> like Jesus on the mount. I feel like if Final Fantasy XV had been developed maybe a little more properly and wasn't so hodgepodge, it would have turned out to be a more enjoyable experience. I'm a little worried that that's the case of what's happening with Final Fantasy 16 as well, that it's kind of a hodgepodge evolving from different ideas into a final version. I mean, who knows? I, I, I do have faith in the team to make it, if it is a little hodgepodgey, to kind of really stick it together. I Whatever is going on with Final Fantasy 16 or whatever has gone on with 16, I feel like it's not as bad as what was going on with 15, which was just in real dire straits for a while there. And I was just saying to Katie, like, yeah, you're absolutely right. I do wish it was a little bit put, a little better put together because I just love the fact that it reminded me of, of driving like in the interstate going between Toronto and North Carolina. And, you know, you stop at a Waffle House and uh, there's a it's like what you, what you get on the road. But there's an adamantois like it's the size of a mountain in the background. And you have the, the Waffle House cook saying, oh, the old Zeke's up to the old tricks again. The fact that the Final Fantasy fourteen team is involved with Final Fantasy sixteen makes me wonder if there's some kind of multiplayer component that we don't know about. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, it would be interesting if you had like kind of drop in, drop out gameplay, given how action based this this title seemingly is. Though, if it were a multiplayer game, you would think that they would be pushing it right from the start, right? Exactly. So that's what makes me kind of hesitate and say, well, maybe it's not happening. But it could even be something they're still experimenting with and make a solid decision about later. So. When I was watching that old Final Fantasy thirteen trailer, one thing that jumped out at me was how much I actually missed the battle system. That uh, 13th battle system in particular? Yeah, um, I do just kind of miss the, the more complex, sometimes silly Final Fantasy battle systems, that's for sure. And I don't think I don't think uh, 16 is going to have that. I just miss the fact that it seemed like a kind of a nice hybrid toward more of a flowing action uh, kind of set up, but also maintaining kind of a menu-based uh, item. I wish that Final Fantasy, rather than going full action, had continued to toe that line. Yeah, I, I do. I agree with you. Um, either use that, use maybe the uh, the system from Final Fantasy VII Remake, like we said, but I, do, I am still disappointed we don't have some kind of menu-based element here. I, I wasn't a huge, huge fan of 15's battle system. I dealt with it. And I'll probably deal with this system too, but it's just a shame. So my main takeaway when I look back at Final Fantasy thirteen and Final Fantasy fifteen being announced at the beginning of the generation is that Square wants to position Final Fantasy as this prestige series, right? Mm -hmm. That is kind of a centerpiece release, usually on a PlayStation console, that is going to define the generation with new and amazing graphics in some way, especially with Final Fantasy thirteen. And interestingly, that seems to be less the case with Final Fantasy XVI. Like, I sort of feel like they were trying to push it as a, a graphical powerhouse. It got it was front and center with PlayStation Five, but it didn't really come out that way. I guess Sony didn't really have to worry about that anyway because the mm. subsequent games they showed, like next, I think was Miles Morales, and that looked fantastic. So it wasn't like, hey, all our final, all our games are going to look like souped up Final Fantasy XIV. Like this is what our system can do. So I don't think they were too worried about putting uh, Final Fantasy 16 at the fore because it's still a big, big, big news. So Final Fantasy 16, uh, how, ultimately, how did you feel that the reveal compared uh, in previous years? 
I definitely think that Final Fantasy 15 maybe had bigger oomph behind it, maybe because it, A, it happened during E3 when E3 still existed in the before time, and <laughs> yeah. B, because it had Kingdom Hearts 3 there as well. But at the same time, I think that Final Fantasy was a genuine mess at the time, and it seems to be in a more stable position these days. Yeah, definitely. I remember the reveal of Final Fantasy 13 and being... At that point, I was a little bit off the series, and I looked at that game and said, nah, this is the reason why I just don't care anymore, because some people are complaining about how they Final Fantasy 16 doesn't have like the big imaginative worlds the way that 13 and whatnot had, but something about 13's world just always seems so, so plastic to me. I just never really got into it, so I wasn't huge about the reveal there. Uh, 15, I was a lot more excited about, and I was, I was jazzed to see that logo change from 13 versus to 15. I thought that was great. And I love the idea of the road trip. I will say that 16, I'm more excited about the story and who's working on it and the idea of having like summons as a major part of the story and maybe part of the gameplay too versus like I didn't get that sense of wow, wonder, like wow, this is going to be so original and cool. And that's fine. I was just like this is going to be a, a, probably a good solid game with a hopefully a really good story and probably a great soundtrack too. Uh, my parting shot is I'm still waiting for Square to make a Final Fantasy game that feels like Final Fantasy. <laughs> what did you have in mind? Everyone has an idea, has a different idea of what feels with Final Fantasy. Like people were saying, this doesn't feel like Final Fantasy, and it's like I've been I had been saying that when Final Fantasy VII was revealed. I was like, this isn't Final Fantasy. It's just something all RPG f- that just passes the lips of all RPG fans at some point. <laughs> uh, to me, the mon- the quest in Monster Hunter where you're fighting the Behemoth, where first you find the little cactars that are running around in the desert and then you fight uh like the the ostrich guy i can't remember what it's called starts with a k who takes a crystal and keeps growing bigger and bigger and bigger and you're working (laughs) with this adorable moogle who's like giving you advice on what you're supposed to be doing and fighting against this thing and then eventually you discover that a behemoth has come into your world and when you're fighting the behemoth, it's casting various spells and like meteors coming down on you. And it just has this wonderful Final Fantasy feel to it, right? Where right. it's leaning into so much, so much of the iconography and uh, the, the character designs are wonderful and seeing the Moogle there is wonderful. And I'm not saying that that's not going to be in Final Fantasy 16. You see the armies riding in on the chocobos and everything, right? Yeah. Um, I think, okay. Here's what I think that a lot of the more recent Final Fantasies have been missing in some way. It's the whimsy. Like, mm-hmm. I want that sense of whimsy that I was getting in the in Monster Hunter that maybe goes all the way back to the 16-bit era. Maybe that's just me. Yeah, I understand that. I am hoping that the next trailer gives us, like, more variety with the characters and the races because one of the mm. best things about 14 is the different races and just the, the amount of lore behind their biology and their their culture like it's all really fun and interesting and final fantasy 14 does have extremely serious moments but it's also a lot of fun at parts just cute and funny and lets itself have a good time and i'm hoping that final fantasy 16 does the same thing thematically well yoshi p and company have earned our trust and exactly they've earned that much at least and i don't think we're going to be waiting three years for this game take uh, let's just say that so I thought, I might have imagined it, that, but I thought I saw a 2021 release date, but there's no way that can be right. <laughs> I didn't see anything at the end of that trailer, no. Maybe I was hallucinating. Yeah, I think you were hallucinating, Nadia. It happens. But I, I, like I said, I think that it's going to be actually coming out much sooner. We're not going to be it, waiting the whole freaking generation for it, let's just say that much. 
No, the Final Fantasy XIV team is clockwork. And that's one of the reasons the game has endured for so long, I think, is because it's just like expansion, patch, 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 expansion, patch, patch, patch. Like they never fail. So I think Yoshi P runs a pretty tight ship. All right, those are our thoughts on Final Fantasy 16 and all of the next-gen reveals and all of that in Monster Hunter. What was your favorite next-gen reveal? How are you feeling about games like Monster Hunter Rise and Harry Potter and Final Fantasy 16? We'd love to hear your thoughts. If you want to share your own thoughts for the mailbag, send me a note through DM at the underscore catbot. Email me at cat.bailey at usgamer.net or leave a comment on the show notes. Okay, Nadia, let's continue on to the track of the week. Okay, Nadia, once again, it's time for the track of the week, this segment in which we review a piece of music from an RPG because music is so important to the genre that we love. This week, we have a user suggestion from Christopher Reed, who says, I have a suggestion for your musical track of the week. I don't know how much attention Ring Fit Adventure gets for its music, but I think they deserve more credit for being impeccably designed workout tracks that blend seamlessly into the player's actions. In particular, the mini-boss music slaps. Let's have a listen. You know, Nadia, when I was listening to that again, I was like, wow, I mean, Ring Fit Adventures soundtrack is better than it has any right to be. Basically, it gave me Splatoon vibes, and that's in a very good way. I actually love the way Nintendo uses complete nonsense lyrics, like there's garbled, like <laughs> like they do with the squids or whatever, and I guess they're doing that for Ring Fit as well, which is a game I would very much like to own, but it's a hard one to get. Yeah, I mean, it was totally sold out because Nintendo being Nintendo, like... It had a peripheral attached, and I don't think they were expecting it to be the hit that it ended up being. And so, as a result, it was perpetually out of stock, especially once the pandemic hit and everybody had a yeah. lot more time to work out. Yeah, once the pandemic hit, boom, that was it. You were not finding this game. For sure. It The soundtrack was composed by several people from Nintendo, and would you believe one of them worked on Splatoon? So maybe that's why you got that vibe no. from it. I, I, I had a feeling that uh, we had a little cross-pollination going on here. <laughs> I really like the Ring Fit Adventure soundtrack, though. I mean, I'm really surprised given... I don't feel like we've talked a lot about Ring Fit Adventure on here, but it's such a beautiful example of how they took uh, RPG principles and gamified uh, a workout using them. And some, I think it was Matt who was saying that their roommate does two-hour sessions with Ring Fit every single day now. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. And um, Katie was just crying about how she had to plank and she was, in a, she was in a lot of pain today. I was playing Ring Fit Adventure and just one workout in that game left me completely worn out. Like, it reminds me of Homer trying to work off all the weight and he's like, <laughs> and they're one. like, okay, uh, all right, do another one. He's like, oh, wait. No. So when you're ready, no. Oh. No, no, I gotta, gotta keep, <laughs> I think it was a boxing episode, actually, when they're actually yes. training. Yeah, that's right. It's like, right. okay, punching isn't your thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. From what I've heard, like, it gives you, because I did Wii Fit back in the day, like mm. everyone else, and that never really gave you a really good workout. 
Uh, I hear that's completely different with Ring Fit Adventure, which will destroy you if you let it. Yeah, you go through like a full dungeon, and then when you're fighting a boss, you're just like, I gotta kill this boss, but oh my god, I'm actually dying doing this workout routine. It actually, that's actually kind of fun, because it's the whole idea of what it would actually be like to be uh, someone who's like in, in heavy armor fighting all these monsters to get to the boss, and usually in games, by the time you get to the boss, you cast Cure and you're good. If you're doing it in real life, you're like, oh god, I'm dead, I can't do this. It's even rougher when you get into one of those random encounters. I don't think it's really a random encounter, but you'll get into an encounter. You're like, in other RPGs, you're like, oh, this is annoying. I just have to get through this fast. In Ring Fit, you're like, oh, no, here comes more exercise. <laughs> here comes the pain. <laughs> um, and uh, as you might expect, Ring Fit Adventure has a pretty energetic soundtrack because it's a workout game. You're not going to have a, like nice piano tunes or whatever. But um, I think it's interesting that they also added a rhythm mode. Oh, yeah, that's right. They added that, which is like, I'm, I'm all for rhythm games, so that's pretty cool with me. That's one actually really good thing about this game that I foresee, is that it's going to last for a long time, because DLC is so easy. Uh, we Fit couldn't really do that very easily, so I think that unlike We Fit, we're, we're not going to see a ton of like plastic rings in the thrift shops within three months. No, no, I think it's much better than the Wii balance board and whatnot. I still have that thing. It's really heavy. <laughs> so I don't want to throw it out. Several of the people who are compo- credited with the composition of Ring Fit Adventures soundtrack include Shinji Ushiroda, Masa Miyoshi, Shiho Fuji, and Asuka Hayazaki. And I think they did a phenomenal job. And Ring Fit is a great game. And I look forward to Ring Fit Adventure 2 if it ever happens. I look forward to finding the game. <laughs> All right, that's our track of the week. If you want to contribute to your own track and have it discussed on this episode, do me a favor, send it to capot.bailey at usgamer.net. Okay, let's continue on to the mailbag, Nadia. We have a couple of letters from our listeners. The first one is from Stark X. I'm looking forward to the Baldur's Gate 3 early access more than anything coming out in the holidays, TBH. It feels like forever since I've played a party-based CRPG with this mix of depth and of production values, maybe even as far back as Dragon Age Origins. Cyberpunk looked good too, but with The Witcher as president, I have doubts that it'll be fun to play beyond the narrative experience. I'm pretty skeptical of action combat and RPGs in general at this point. Uh, so we were talking about the fall RPG preview from last week, Nadia, and... Yeah, they make a good point that Baldur's Gate 3, as a traditional CRPG, we've had traditional CRPGs since then. I mean, we played Pillars of Eternity from Obsidian. We've had Wasteland 3. And they're fine RPGs in their own rights, but they didn't have the production values. Baldur's Gate 3 feels like a classic late 90s CRPG, but with an actual budget. And I'm pumped as heck to play it. Yeah, it's definitely, like, just just so that uh, presentation they showed us a couple of weeks ago, d- despite the horrible connection, uh, it looks like that game has, like, a real depth that most games these days don't bother to plumb. So it's going to be a huge deal for people who are into CRPGs. It looks way deeper even than Dragon Age Origins. Dragon Age Origins is remembered as kind of this deep CRPG, but at the time it was kind of criticized, especially for its battle system. Yeah, this feels like those older ideas but much more modern so i think the two i think the two flavors will work well i've thought about reinstalling da origins at times onto my pc now that my pc can actually run it (laughs) you should yeah revisit but i mean i don't have time for a 50-hour rpg uh that Uh, i've already played 
And then yeah. also yeah. people kind of grumble about the weird kind of grim dark aesthetic of it and how it kind of directly borrows from A Song of Ice and Fire in ways that are really obvious, mm. especially if you watch Game of Thrones these days. Yeah, well, then Skyrim did the same thing. So, well, that not with Game of Thrones, but just the song Fire, Ice and Fire. The thing with Dragon Age, that the freaking series does have an original bone in its body. I'm sorry. Mm. It's like yeah. so many different Final uh, Final Fantasy fantasy series with the serial numbers filed off, and they even freaking stole the Skyrim uh, sound. The sound, the level of sound. Yeah, I remember hearing about that. Uh, yeah, maybe that's why I can never really get deep into the universe. I just feel like I didn't really, I wasn't really invested in a lot of it, except for the dog. I like the big ass dog. When you want, when you play Dragon Age Origins, you just go, man, you guys really liked Lord of the Rings, didn't you? <laughs> oh, uh, elves are the depressed, uh, elves are the oppressed people. All right. Yeah. Yeah, no, gotcha. yeah exactly. But also uh, with Mordor and everything, I feel like Eric Van Allen is about the, the door is about to explode off the hinges and Eric Van Allen's going to be like, I'm going to defend Dragon Age 2 now. <laughs> he's going to come on the next episode. He's going to put the mic in front of his face and he's just going to go on and on and on. And that's the episode. Dave Dalrymple 11 says, I like it best when a game front loads its interesting choices. The earlier I lock in my romantic partner, for example, the longer I have to enjoy unique events with that partner. The problem I have with so many ostensibly meaningful choices in games is that you so rarely get to experience the consequences of that choice. Especially in the case of late game choices, they often amount to nothing more than a different slide during the ending sequence. Well, that's why Witcher 3 is so special, Nadia. It's because you lock in your romantic partner early on, and so it feels a lot more meaningful because you have many more opportunities to interact with them and also have drama with the partner that you end up rejecting. I love one of the funniest stories I ever read was on Reddit. Someone uh, wanted to marry Farkas in Skyrim. Of course he would. But he screwed up and he married Vilkas instead. So he abandoned Vilkas at the altar and proposed to, to Farkas instead. And Vilkas, like, whenever he was around, would be like, I never want to see you again. And, like, this really bad accent. <laughs> so, I love that kind of stupid drama. So, yes, I'm always like, oh, my God, I got to get my romantic partner, like, first. The, the game is five minutes old. I don't care. I want my romantic partner right now. I, on the other hand, am history's greatest monster because I totally jilted Chie and I can never forgive myself for it. Yeah, I can, whenever I think about that, I feel a little shiver go up my spine. I mean, it's legit heartbreaking. Like It would be. Uh, when I went to Poor Naoko Chie. and I was like, sorry, Chie. And she's Aww. just like, it's not only that she felt rejected, she like was beating herself up about it. And I was just like, oh. Aww, baby, of course she is, because she has problems. I totally identify with Chie, too, in that respect. Poor Chie. Yeah, I like Naoto, but like uh, Chie is just like the soul of Persona 4, if you ask me. Oh, for sure. Yeah, like I feel like she, her her friend, uh, her friendship like totally defines Persona 4. But then I went ahead and and got together with uh, Marie. And when you get to like your 10 level, she says to you, like she blushes and like, will you make new memories with me? And you're in your bedroom. So I screen cap that, right? And I put that on on Twitter and I said, uh... Did I just score? <laughs> <laughs> All right. That is it for Acts of the Blood God. If you enjoyed the show, do me a favor and leave a nice review over on Apple Podcasts. Make sure to follow me on Twitter at the underscore capot at Nadia at Nadia Oxford. I'm streaming on Twitch at twitch.tv slash capbailytv and Nadia's at Acton Kitten when she's 
playing Final Fantasy fourteen, being a Final Fantasy fourteen into uh, influencer. Yes, I am looking. I am working on like I got a camera that I'm getting to work, and I want to work on a, a more solid schedule. But don't worry, I won't step on your toes. I promise. Okay, thank you. <laughs> She's gonna steal all <laughs> of my welcome. audience. It's gonna be sad. No, I would not do that. Make sure to subscribe to our newsletter and look forward to us being back next week as always. But until then, for Nadia and myself, thanks for listening and happy adventures. <laughs>